Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. This morning, we're talking about a promise, a promise that God is keeping his word. There is nothing more disappointing than someone promising you something and not following through with it. And there is nothing that feels, makes us feel more guilty than promising something that we can't deliver. <clears throat> but what we see here today is that God promised to save you from your sins and to save me from my sins. And not only did he promise that, he demonstrated his love throughout the entire history of the world to prove it. Folks, I want to tell you something today. God keeps his word. If God said it in here, he is bound by it and he will not act any differently. He always acts according to his word. So before time as we know it existed, God knew that you and I would need to be saved from ourselves. You see, mankind has needed a Messiah since the very fall of man in the Garden of Eden. God's plan has always been for his son Jesus to come to this earth to live a sinless life so that he could be the sacrifice or the the payment for our sin debt that we could never repay. And throughout the Old and New Testament, you can trace the promise of God's plan to do just that from the very beginning of Genesis all the way to the last words of Revelation. And he even makes several promises or what the Bible calls covenants, uh, saying as much And God never breaks his promises. So today we see God made a promise that seems impossible. However, there is hope. Because why is that? God does not know the meaning of the word impossible. If you don't believe me, look at Matthew 19.26 that says, With God, most things are possible. No, that's not what it says. It says, With God, everything is possible. Um, God doesn't know the, the meaning of the word I was meaning to or I should have done. Everything is right on time as promised. So with that said, let's look at our scriptures today as we look at the, the basically the things leading up to the birth of Christ. Today we're, we're looking at the, the very beginnings of John the Baptist who was going to be the, the precursor or the, the forerunner, the, the making the way for Jesus to come into this world. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And what we see here is that the first four verses are, are basically Luke, the, the apostle, establishing his credibility. And he says here, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I also have described, or I have also uh, decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. Now, just a minute on these four verses. I just want to let you know that as this verse was written, Luke was very educated. He was a physician. He was a scholar. So he could have gone toe-to-toe with the greatest thinkers of that day. And so if you go back, and I'm, I'm not trying to to be all, all high and mighty by saying this, but if you go back to the Greek text, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know where to find the information. If you go back, this verses 1 through 4 it's just one long run-on sentence. 
I know nowadays in English you're not supposed to have run-on sentences. But in that style of writing, it was one long sentence. It wasn't until later when uh, people added chapters and verses and all those things where they kind of split this up. But this is one long sentence. So what does that mean? Many of the writers back in that day, they would spend the first part of their letter establishing why they have the right to say what they say, as opposed to today, people say whatever they think, whether it's right or not. But back then, they would say, look, this is what I'm saying. This is why I am credible in what I am saying. And notice it says here that he has eyewitness accounts. He probably heard this from other apostles. And it's believed that some of, like maybe Matthew and Mark, their their books were already written. And so he's he's not retelling their stories, but he's telling his version of that from eyewitness accounts. And many believe that he sat down in some of the scriptures, much of what is written in Luke, is an interview that he had with Mary, the mother of Jesus. So Luke, what we see here, he's very he starts very formal, but then after verse 4, he writes for regular people. He is just writing, salt of the earth, regular, I want you to understand. He was writing for the common person to understand. And so Luke wrote not to impress people. He wrote what God told him for the purpose of understanding. So we see also that Luke had a credible witness. And then also Luke sought to bring clarity to understanding Jesus' life and purpose. After reading Matthew and Mark's accounts, Luke wanted to fill in the details that someone might, that some had been omitted. Like, for example, if you go to, uh, if you didn't know it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called the synoptic gospels. In other words, it's like building a sandwich. They all have much of the same things. Some are included in others. But if you stack them together like a sandwich, you get the full picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, if you go, like, say, during Easter and you read through the crucifixion of Jesus, Luke's detail of the crucifixion is much more visceral and much more physical. Why? Because he was a physician. If you read in John, he was more of a storyteller. and It would be more of a, a, a summarization. So just some things to think about as we read through the book of Luke. So with all of that said, well, I want you to see that God notices those who live a righteous life. God notices those who live a righteous life. We see in verses 5 through 7, it says, When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah and his wife, Elizabeth, who also was from the priestly line of Aaron. That's a, a throwback to the Old Testament, to when they were first putting together the temple, and Aaron was the leader of all of the priests, who was Moses' brother. He goes, he's tracing it all the way back to the beginning. And then in verse 6, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes. That's the key there. He was, they were righteous in God's eyes. Now, it also says there, they were careful to obey all of the Lord's commands and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. If it's just, maybe sometimes it's just me, but doesn't it feel like sometimes those who are doing wrong get all the attention? Whether it be a family member, a co-worker, a celebrity, a politician, an athlete, the Bible is filled with people asking this question, why do wicked people prosper? 
But what I want you to see today is that if you are that person that is righteous, you may not be, you may not have all the followers that everybody else has on the social media feed. You may not be featured in magazines. You may not have people clamoring to, to get pictures of you at your house. You may have none of that. But if you are God's child, and if you are doing all of you can to live a righteous life, and what does a righteous life mean? I'm not talking about you are high and mighty. I'm just saying if you are trying your best as a believer to read God's word and to do what it says and to live your life according to God's word, he would look at you and say you are a righteous person. Not a perfect person, but a righteous person. And have no fear because God notices the righteous. This is not those who are perfect and know it. They think that they have no sin. These are believers whose lives bear spiritual fruit, resulting in their honest attempt of living life according to God's Word. Let me just ask you, what a compliment and confirmation to look as God looks at you and called you righteous. You see, Zechariah was God's servant. He worked at the temple teaching people scriptures. He was directing the worship services. And and he was basically keeping up the temple. And there was... uh, Many priests in Zechariah's group, but if you notice in the scripture, it says he was in the group. His group of Abijab, they were there on duty that week for that time. This was not a random chance meeting. Zechariah unknowingly had a divine appointment with God. Now, here's the thing I want you to see here. Now, we all have a daily grind. Some of you have already thought, hurry up, preacher, i got to get on with what i got to do today, and then Monday's coming, i got this going on, Tuesday's coming, and then i got to get Christmas presents, and i got to, oh my goodness, just come on, preacher, just move on. We all have a grind, don't we? We all have things we do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. But what I want you to see is, is that in the midst of Zechariah's daily grind, in the midst of him going to church, for us it would be like Sunday after Sunday, we're doing our thing. God intervenes because God sees the righteous people. Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying for some time that they would have a child. And so when it says righteous in God's eyes, that means this simply, folks, that Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were the real deal. God had more than Zechariah's blind obedience to some religious law. He had their hearts. And look, you can try to keep every word in this Bible, in your strength, to try to do it on your own, to be as perfect as you can, and you will fail miserably. It's designed that way because it shows you your need for Jesus. But when we look at Zechariah and when we look at Elizabeth, we see that they were not doing religious activities. They gave God their heart. And my friends, that's what God wants from you. Church attendance and and outward things are great. But he wants your heart first and foremost, because then those things will flow. Now, verses 8 through 17, we see God makes a promise that only he can keep. God makes a promise that only he can keep. In verses 8 through 13, it says, One day Zechariah was serving God in the temple, doing his thing, right? He was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. And as it was custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary 
of the Lord and burn incense. When it says chosen by lot, they had these things that would look like dice and they would roll them. And you would say it sounds like gambling. It wasn't gambling, but that, they felt like the Lord would work in the way that if your number came up, it's kind of like drawing straws. If you get the short straw, you got to do this. That's what was going on here. And it says he was show, chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. In verse 10, while the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. What I want you to see here, folks, is that Zechariah was put in to do that job that day because the people casted lots and his number came up. Sounds pretty random, doesn't it? It was not random. He had a divine appointment with an angel that God was, God was going to use this angel to rock his world. And so what I want you to see here is that you may be here today in your normal routine, but you have no idea that you have a divine appointment right in front of you, maybe even in the next few moments. And it says in verse 12, Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. The first half of of verse 13 says, but the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Isn't it amazing? Time after time in the Bible, when God approaches someone or uses an angel to approach somebody, the first thing they say is, whoa, 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 hold on. Don't be afraid. I don't know about y'all, but if I saw a real angel, I would probably be afraid too. But it says, don't be afraid. And I love this. God has heard your prayer. God has heard your prayer. This may be simple words, but when you think about the ramifications of this, how many times have you thought, God doesn't hear my prayer? God hasn't answered in the way that I want. I wish he would quit saying, wait. I've been praying for this for ten years, and it's still not happening. God hears your prayer. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were up in age. They were senior adults. They would have come to their breakfast last morning. They were up. Can you imagine how long that prayer was? It, it kind of, do you think maybe they even kind of gave up a little bit because they thought, there's no way a baby's coming out of this now. My days are over. Have you been in that point where you say, there is no way that what I'm praying for could happen? And when we pray with doubt, it's almost like we're erasing even the request at all. We see here that it says in verse 14, there's a promise of a child. It says in the second half of 13, your wife Elizabeth will give you a son and you are to name him John. To which Zechariah said, yeah, right. <laughs> Her? Do you know how old she is? This is huge. There are many couples that know the hurt of not being able to have children. Some are perfectly fine with that. Some feel like that their gift is loving other children because they don't have their own. But in this culture, when this was written, for Zechariah and Elizabeth, not having children was a sign of shame. If you do not have children, you were seen as being Cursed by God that either you or someone in your family before you had done something so wrong that God had cursed you to not be able to have children. I 
I wonder how many times Zechariah and Elizabeth thought, God's not hearing our prayer. But now, here we go in verse 14 and 13, 14. It says, hey, you're going to have a son, and I want you to name him John. Verse 14, you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with spirit and the power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. What we see here, every life has a God-given purpose. Every life has a God-given purpose. It says in Malachi the same thing in chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. God answers their request for a child and also gives them the directions on how to raise him. He was born for a special purpose. So, folks, the angel's words showed that John would be the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. When it says that uh, he will that he will not ever have wine or alcoholic drinks touch him that was because he was going to be powered by the holy spirit not by the spirits that man make he was just trying to say, keep it from anybody saying look that guy's really doing something he must be under the influence he was supposed to be you know don't don't even partake of it. Don't be, even be part of that. You have a special purpose. And then, uh, he was to be 100% God-powered, controlled by God's Spirit, not alcohol. And he was also to bring God's chosen Israelites back to faith in God. He was going to have the power of Elijah. That would be, in today's world, it would be like saying that your baby's going to be born and he's going to have the power of Superman. To them, that's who Elijah was in that context. And he will prepare the way for the long-awaited Messiah. And he will usher in family harmony and peace among believers. He is going to prepare the way. As a Jew that was reading this or hearing this, they would have said, Our long-awaited Messiah, this guy is the one preparing the way for it. So what do we see in this? In verses 18 through 25, We need to leave our doubt at the door regarding God's promises. We need to leave our doubt at the door regarding God's promises. Look at verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, How can I be sure this this will happen? I am an old man, and my wife is also well along in years. I think I was looking at a, a, a social media feed or, 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 or some type of news feed or something like that, and I saw that uh, somewhere in the world there was, and I don't know how, the, I probably should have researched this, but the oldest age of a woman to ever give birth, I don't know what that is. Some of y'all could probably Google it and tell me after church, and that's fine. But I just remember thinking, this woman was like 53 or something like that, and she had a child, or, or it was either late 40s or or early 50s, and I thought, wow. I'll go ahead and tell you something. If one of our senior adults came and said, preacher, pray for me, I'm pregnant. (laughs) 
I'd say, you need to talk to Donna. She's got a place you can go. And, and, uh, and she's got some friends you can talk to. But no, exactly. I mean, this made no sense. God says, look, I'm going to do this. And it made no earthly sense. I mean, when you see what he says in verse 18, how can you be sure or how can I be sure that this will happen? That's almost like praying, God, this is what I hope that you will do, but I don't believe you'll do it. I'll pray because the preacher told me to pray about this, but I just don't see it happening. You want me to do what? There's no way I could do that. There's no way this could be what you're saying. That's what Zechariah was doing. He had been praying and praying and praying, and it said that God heard his prayer. And so now, even as they were in older age, he said, look, you're going to have a son. Let me ask you something. Which gives God more glory? An 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old female giving birth? Or a 65-year-old female giving birth? Both of them are beautiful. But one of them just seems like there's no way that's going to happen. Remember, impossible is not in God's vocabulary. So if you are sitting here and you are praying and you are asking for God to do something and you don't see how he's going to do it, you better remove that doubt from that prayer because God can do whatever he wants to do. And whatever he does in his time and his way is for his glory and your good. That's why he's doing this. The angel said in verse 19, I am Gabriel. You see, Zechariah and the other faithful Jews would have recognized the name Gabriel because he appears in the book of Daniel where he explains the prophet's visions to him in Daniel 8 and 9. And then Gabriel said, I stand in the very presence of God. It is he who sent me to bring you this good news. In other words, he's the messenger saying, look, the big man gave me some orders and gave me some, some information I'm going to pass on to you. The big guy, the main guy, the, the, the guy that we worship, the guy that made everything, he's got a message for you. And folks, there's no difference in this. This is the message from the big guy to you and I. And as we read this and as we apply this, these are words meant for our good. And he says, since you didn't believe what I said. You will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born, for my words will certainly be fulfilled in proper time. Well, that seems kind of harsh. Zechariah, what was Zechariah's sin or what was Zechariah's problem? It starts with a D, ends with a T, and it's got O-U-B in the middle. Did I get that right? That was like totally off the... Hey, I chased a rabbit and it worked. It was doubt. Sin of doubt. Folks, I tell you with all the love in the world, and I'm telling it to myself too. If you are praying with doubt in your heart, remove it. It doesn't do you a favor, and God is not impressed with it. If you pray it, you believe it. Now, I will say this. Be open as you pray for God to answer in ways that you weren't expecting, right? Because whatever he's going to do is going to give him glory and be for your good. So asking how will lead you to unbelief every single time. God, this is what I want you to do, but tell me how to do it. Better yet, God, this is what I want you to do, and I'll tell you how to do it. Doesn't work like that, does it? 
God never gives us the entire picture of what his plans are. You know that, right? God will never give you, lay out the whole thing. He gives you just enough to take the next step. And then he does that so you will trust him for the next one, and the next one, and the next one. Let me give you fair warning. Doubt destroys the ability to enjoy God's promises. Doubt gets rid of you the ability to joy God's promises. See, the inability to not speak was a sign of doubt to remind Zechariah and others to not doubt God. I mean, Zechariah went into this room. He got this message and he was fully functional. When he came out, hey, Zechariah, what happened? Whatever it is, it's not like Beaker from the Muppets. Some of you that are younger, you'll have to Google who Beaker from the Muppets is. But anyway, that was a rabbit that didn't land. But the truth of the matter is, is that he came out and he was different. And God was punishing him. He could not, I mean, the fact that his senior adult wife was pregnant and he couldn't tell anybody about it. God said, okay, sucker, I'll show you. He was saying, look, you can't say a word now. And so, folks, when you and I pray and we say, okay, God, this is what I want you to do. And God says, okay, I'm going to do that. And you say, but how, God? I don't think you can do it. That ain't going to fly, God. God is not impressed with that. When we do not believe God's promises for our lives, we do not necessarily destroy the promise. But we do destroy our ability to enjoy the promise. What made this such a severe punishment was that Zechariah had such good news to tell. But he could not tell it. Meanwhile, verse 21, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. So they knew something was going on. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterwards, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. It says he came home. And this was not immaculate conception. He and his wife got together after he came home from doing his duties at the temple. And they did what married people do. And they conceived. God said it. God promised it. And it happened. No longer would they be the couple that were childless and barren. No longer would they be the cursed couple that God didn't love because he didn't give them children. I can see her now after this five months is up. Hello, big baby bump out, gray hair. Look what God did. Again, God gets glory for this. God's promise removed the stigma of her childlessness. Zechariah had no more relations with his wife. He partnered with God to fulfill the promise. He did not count on this child coming from a miraculous conception. So Elizabeth will go from the woman who was cursed by God 
to being the righteous woman that God blessed with a child. My friends, you can have confidence in this. You can have complete confidence in God. God does not break his promises. He is incapable of going back on his word. God will never let you down. He just doesn't always work by your understanding or your timetable. So as we wrap our time up today, I would tell you, don't lose sight of God. Don't lose sight of God. Don't think that your problems are too big for him. Don't think that your sin is too dark for him. Don't think that he is a pastime, that the world has evolved beyond a need for him. Do not think that all the self-motivation that you can muster will be any replacement for God. Because God has created a hole in your heart and a hole in my heart. Ecclesiastes 3.11 talks about it. He says he's planted eternity in our heart. There is a hole in our life that only God can fill. And we need to quit filling our lives with things that are not God. Because they will never fill it. God loves you. And he's made a promise to you. And I'll show it to you in the form of a verse that you know very well. John 3.16 For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son. There's the promise. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes, that is our response, in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That is the realization of the promise. So take God at His word today, my friends. He has made a promise to you, and He keeps His promises. Don't let your doubting God keep you from receiving or enjoying what can be found in God's Word. And remember, if you're doing the best you can with what you got, and if you're living the best life you can as a believer, and you you may have some good days, you may have some bad days, but let me understand, or let me help you understand this. And I need to hear it for myself. God sees those who are struggling to live a God-honoring life. It's not about how good you are. It's about the effort you're putting into it. God has promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. God promised Zechariah and Elizabeth a baby. And regardless of what it looked like, or all the cards that were stacked against him, it happened. God has made promises to you, 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 all of you. He's made a promise to you. It, it can be as specific as a certain thing, or it can be just the fact that God has promised all of those in this world that if you come to him and you accept his son, Jesus Christ, you will be saved from your sins. It was a promise he made, and we celebrate today the beginning of that by God bringing John the Baptist, into the world. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for our time together this morning. And dear Heavenly Father, uh, we are going to just have a simple invitation today, Lord. If there is someone here today that does not know you, Lord, and they have, they have just realized that uh, they have been trying to live in their own strength and it's just driving their life into a wall, Lord. And Lord, they realize that, that they need to seek righteous living and not their own. Is there someone here that does not know you today as their Savior and Lord? That This whole reason we're celebrating Christmas, the greatest gift they could receive, is the gift that Jesus came to give, which is salvation. <coughs> and 
If someone would like to receive that, they could come forward. They could come to the altar and pray, pray with me. Maybe someone wants to get baptized, join this church, or just pray at the altar on their own for something they're going through, Lord. Whatever it may be, this invitation is a time for you to move, Lord. For it's in your name we pray. Would you please stand for our human invitation?